I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 through 9. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 through 9. We will read there in just a few moments. And today is part one, really, of two messages, this week and next week, in talking about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and Jesus' role in that covenant. Now, you may ask the question, a question that is a good question, what is a covenant? We even read about it in Mark, where Jesus said this is the blood of the covenant. The book of Hebrews talks a lot about covenants. And a key question for us this morning really is, what is a covenant? And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Shakespeare famously wrote, What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. This is a line in Romeo and Juliet meant to convey that the naming of things is irrelevant. The name doesn't define who the person is. And though in earthly terms there is some truth to that, is what Shakespeare said that what's in a name? What does it matter? Is that true biblically when we think about certain truths and realities of people? Last week we talked about Satan, our great adversary. His names and titles, are they irrelevant or do they tell us who he really is? And the answer, of course, is that his names and titles are who he is and that he is called the adversary, the lying spirit, the slanderer, the accuser. He is a created angel who defected from heaven, who wanted to be like God and committed the sin of prideful rebellion against God and was cast down to heaven with a third of the angels that now are the demonic host that roam throughout the world to accuse the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. These names, the adversary, the lying spirit, the slanderer, the accuser, and many others, this is who and what he is. Who is the one that speaks on our behalf? Jesus Christ that we've been talking about at the book of Hebrews is written towards giving us such an understanding of who he is. What are his names? What are his titles? Who is this Jesus? You know, I found that there are over 200 different names and titles for Jesus found throughout the Bible. Over 200 that describe who he is and what he is. The first one, of course, is so familiar, Jesus Christ, his first and his last name. Right? No. Christ is not his last name. Jesus is his name. If you were to give him his true name in Hebrew, it would be Joshua bar Joseph or Yeshua bar Joseph, son of Joseph. That would be his actual name. But Jesus, a Greek transliteration of Joshua, Yahshua, Yahweh saves. Christos, Christ, the anointed one. Picking up on that Old Testament theme of Messiah, that when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the Joshua, the one through whom Yahweh saves, the one whom has been anointed to fulfill this great office. He is also called the chief cornerstone in Ephesians 2.20, the foundation of our faith. 
the firstborn of all creation. He is preeminent and first in rank. He is the last Adam, the life-giving progenitor of a new human race to be redeemed and glorified for all of eternity. He is almighty. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, Revelation 3.14, the holy and righteous one, Acts 3.14, the righteous judge, the King of kings and Lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6.15. He is the light of the world. He is Emmanuel. The Gospel of John tells us that he is the great I am. He is the bread of life, the living water. 1 John 5.20, he is the true God. Those who say that the Bible never claims that Jesus is God have never read the Bible. Hebrews 12.2, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the good shepherd. He is our rock. He is the resurrection and the life. He is our mediator. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is creator and forerunner. He is the Lamb of God. He is Savior. He is Son of God. He is Son of Man. And even if you go back into the Old Testament, He is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And as Hebrews tells us, He is also High Priest. And I just gave you just 28 titles out of 200 plus references to Christ. You want a rich understanding of who our Jesus is? Who is the one who speaks on our behalf? Just, just do a study and just make a note and an underline every time Jesus is called a title or a name. What's in a name? In Jesus' case, a lot. Everything. That in Hebrews 8, that it says that we have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, exalted, seated with the Father at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. This is a grand and glorious and high Christology. And one of my complaints against the modern Christian culture today is that we do not have a high Christology, but we have a low Christology. Christology, the study of Christ, the knowledge of Christ. Christ is just a bro, a good teacher. Someone who does his best and reacts to history and when there were no other options, I guess he gave his life on the cross to try and pick up the mess that humanity had made. Instead of seeing this Christ in the truly exalted terms that we see him, college students, high school students, or even if you're here just for a couple of years, no matter who you are, one thing I hope is that as you come through Heritage and you leave Heritage, that you will have a love for God's Word and that you will, love with, you will leave with a, a love for a high Christology, a, 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 a grand perspective of Christ. And never lose that. 
How can we go to the nations? How can we face the trials of this life if we don't believe that the Jesus who is with us, in us through his Holy Spirit, who stands behind us, is in fact the King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior, Son of man, mediator, rock, good shepherd, our counselor. These things keep us holding fast in the storms of life. And it is this Jesus who stands on your behalf as high priest. And he speaks in a better sanctuary over a better covenant. Everything about Jesus is better. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 through 10. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, this is a transitional verse. We're not going to talk about it today. This leads into next week. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Hebrews has been building up to this point of who this high priest is, outlining his glory, his majesty, his position, his qualification. We're told here in verse 6 that he has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent. And in the Greek text, when it says he has obtained, it is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense in the Greek has the idea that of an event that happened in the past and the effects of that event continue forever. Jesus has obtained a ministry through his death on the cross, through his qualifications, through his death and resurrection. A ministry that will never end. And this ministry is more excellent than the old covenant. It's enacted on better promises. So he has a better ministry as a high priest. He has a better covenant that he oversees. When you look at the priests of the Old Testament and you look at who they were, these priests were charged with being the guardians of the covenant. To make sure that the people of Israel were obedient to God's law and to God's word. To make sure that they walked in light of God's truth. But they were frail. They were fallen. They were sinful. And they were mortal. And so their ministry had defined ends. And their ministry had limitations. But this Jesus has a ministry and a covenant that he presides over. And he upholds and protects that covenant with everything that he is, with everything that we just talked about through his names and titles of who he is. But key question, what is a covenant? Now this may be very simple for some of you, review for others, or brand new information for some of you, and that's okay. A covenant, one way to think of a covenant is a promise. God has made 
covenants, promises throughout the Old Testament. And if you just underline every time the word covenant appears, particularly in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law, the Torah in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those books, if you underline every time the covenant appears, you will see it's a major theme of Scripture. And then indeed throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, it's God promises to people of what he's going to do. But it's not just a promise. It's a treaty. A treaty between two warring parties. A treaty to end World War I, the Treaty of Versailles, the Treaty of World War II. Uh, there uh, may be perhaps on the, the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay, different treaties that are the cessation of hostilities between two warring parties. And that treaty outlines the standards by which these two parties agree to in order to establish a state of peace. The covenant is God's promise to bring peace but it's also, in a, especially in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but in different ways, it is a peace treaty between two warring parties. And the two warring parties, in this case, are holy God and rebellious mankind. Romans 5 affirms the fact that God and man are naturally at war with each other. Romans 8, that we had enmity with God, that we are naturally in conflict with everything that God is. All of those wonderful titles, if we were to give all of our titles and everything that defines us naturally apart from Christ, it's everything that he stands against. We in our natural state resist God and hate God. But you see, in the Old Testament, right at the beginning of Genesis, God brokered a covenant of peace. He brokered a treaty around particularly the law. In the Old Testament, we have the Old Testament, which is sometimes called the first covenant. In Genesis, you have God making a promise to Abraham before the law came, but a promise of what he was going to do. And this is God's purposes that he is going to accomplish in bringing a Messiah. To exist and to live in the context of those blessings, though, we see through Moses, through Sinai, the law is given. And this is God's treaty with mankind. In Exodus 19, verse 5 through 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is God telling Moses, here are the conditions of the treaty. Keep my covenant, keep my law, and you will receive my blessings. The book of Deuteronomy, as you read through it, this is the details of that treaty, the details of that covenant that the two warring parties, as it were, agree to in order to enjoy a state of peace, that man can be at peace with God. And we see in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 to 20, See, I have set before you today life and death, good and evil. And if you obey the commandments of the Lord that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. It's the condition 
blessing. But here's the condition if you break the treaty. Verse 17, Deuteronomy 30. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. This is the covenant, the Old Testament. But as it is, verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. So there's something different. You see, the, the old covenant was dependent upon two parties, God and man. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second so the Bible here is right now admitting that there is a fault in the first covenant. Now you might say, wait, hold on. So God himself is fault or his covenant is at fault? No. In the Old Testament, God always showed himself faultless and faithful. Always. The covenant that he wrote in the Old Testament it's not inferior in the sense that it is not righteous. No, it is fully right and good and holy. So where was the fault? The fault was in the other agreeing party in the treaty. Look at verse 8. For he finds fault with them. So this treaty that has been established between two warring parties, God is perfect and God has been faithful. And despite the fact that this party has constantly broken the treaty and abrogated the treaty and flown in the face of this, God is still upholding his side of the treaty. But you know what? That old law, that old covenant is full of fault because it is dependent in part upon you, upon me. To keep the law, and we never can. And so the Old Testament law is a continual image showing that mankind is unable to fulfill and to uphold our side of the bargain. The covenant failed not because the covenant was flawed, not because God failed. The failure had to do with the people, with Israel, with humanity, with us who are unable to keep the law of God who are unholy and are unable to be righteous. Now a second covenant that Hebrews 8 is talking about is not God saying, well, tried one thing. Guess we'll try something else. Jesus, I guess you're on the hook now. They failed. No. From the very beginning with Abraham throughout the Old Testament, you see God constantly hinting to all along he was going to bring a better covenant, a better promise, a better priest. But the, the first covenant is our schoolmaster. It teaches us our depravity. It teaches us through history and just through reality that we are unable to keep the bargain. God is teaching us and teaching humanity that this is nothing that we can do. 
God knew that man would fail, and so all along he prepared for a new treaty, a new kind of brokered peace, a new one that would not fail. And this is not like the old one. Even though God showed himself, and it says down in verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And by the way, this entire quotation is taken from Jeremiah. That even in the Old Testament, there was a promise of a new covenant, a new treaty that was coming. But it's not, verse 9, like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. See, they broke it. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. God showed himself mighty and visible through the Exodus. He showed himself mighty and visible on Sinai. He showed himself mighty and visible through the desert wanderings. And yet still Israel rejected him. The people rejected God and they rejected his covenant. They rejected the treaty of peace. And so they received justice. The removal of divine concern with the replacement of divine wrath. The Old Testament priests, in summary, presided ultimately over a failed peace treaty. They presided over a failed covenant, not because God failed, not because the covenant was flawed, but because the other agreeing party, us, were flawed. In the context of Hebrews, the writer is saying, why would you go back to the old Judaism where the priests preside over a failed peace treaty with God? All the while, we know from the Old Testament, like Jeremiah spoke, that there was going to be a new peace treaty, a new brokered peace. And the one who's going to oversee that covenant and broker that peace and guard that peace and minister over that peace for all of eternity by his power and might and being and qualification is a new priest, a Melchizedekian priest. Jesus presides over a peace treaty, a new covenant that will never fail. And what is this new covenant? We're going to go into detail a little bit next week, but here is the new covenant. The first covenant was dependent upon man. But it was flawed because we're flawed. God taught us of our inability and of our utter depravity through the Old Testament and that though we are given mankind, humanity, even the visible manifestation of the glory of God, we would turn our back. So God is going to broker a new treaty. And this treaty is unilateral, meaning it's all on God. It has nothing to do with your obedience. It has nothing to do with your keeping the law. It has nothing to do with you living a good life. It has nothing to do with who your mom or dad is. Because ultimately, all of those things will fail. And God, in his zeal 
to accomplish and to save people is going to broker a new treaty, a new standard of peace that is not dependent upon you, but a new standard of peace that is wholly and utterly dependent upon one person and one person only, and that is Jesus Christ. It is a covenant that is accomplished and upheld by God himself. It is accomplished that the salvation that he brokered at the cross, the debt that he paid at the cross, the blood that was spilled at the cross that should have been your blood, my blood. And that salvation is guarded by this living and resurrected Jesus. This Jesus has obtained a holy ministry, presides over a better treaty, a better promise that will never fail because Jesus never fails. And so, brother and sister, why are you living by the law? Why are you trying to be a good Christian and earn your favor with God? Why do you think that your frailty will alienate you from God once you've entered into salvation with God? If you did not achieve it going into it, you can do nothing to disown it because it depends on Christ and not you. Now you say, well, what, what place does holy living have? It has every place. Holy, righteous living flows out of what Christ has done in our life in response and worship and transformation. But your holy living does not save you. Let me say that again. Your holy living does not save you. Your high priest, Jesus Christ, who's broken a new peace at the cross to all who believe in him, that's what saves you. Can we be any clearer? Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be what? Saved. And all God's people said together, Amen. It is true. It is true. This new covenant we find, and here's the big idea of this passage Jesus is a superior priest fulfilling an old promise. Jesus is a superior priest in every way, fulfilling an old promise. That which the Old Testament promised and yet failed because of us, but at the same time foreshadowed to something better, Jesus is the high priest who fulfills it, completes it, and eternally guards it. We can rest in that new peace treaty and that new covenant in Jesus Christ knowing that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we stop, we bow our hearts in praise to you that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to broker a new treaty at the cross that all who believe, that all who trust in the name of Jesus Christ might be saved. I pray 
that this morning will be the hour of salvation for those who are trying to work their way into favor with you instead of resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if that's you, come talk to me. Come talk to one of the pastors after the service. Let us show you from God's word how you might be saved. Brother and sister in Christ, stop your striving for approval and rest in the peace brokered by the Son on your behalf who speaks a better word on your behalf. And now, live a holy life. Enjoy in thanksgiving and worship in response for what he has done for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy to me, to us. That even though we failed our portion of the treaty, Jesus, you brokered something that will never fail. It's wholly dependent upon you, your office, and your work, and we rest in that. Bless us this day with the knowledge of Christ through the Holy Spirit and the strength and the power to live holy, righteous lives. We pray all these things in the power of the holy name of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.